Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. It's MASH Matters, the podcast celebrating the greatest television series of all time, hosted by these two guys right here. I'm Ryan Patrick, alongside Private Igor from MASH, Mr. Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Ryan Patrick. This is Jeff Maxwell, Mr. Igor Straminsky from MASH, the TV show MASH, the wonderful TV show, <laughs> the iconic TV show. Well, it is an iconic television series, and it was created for television by two men, Gene Reynolds and Larry Gelbart. And today, we are going to be celebrating Larry Gelbart. Jeff, you had a firsthand experience working with Larry Gelbart, and I know that he has a very special place in your heart. He does. It was an amazing experience for a young guy like me to uh, suddenly land in the midst of such comic genius that Larry Gelbart possessed. Larry Gelbart was truly, truly a remarkable writer, a remarkable human being, and a nice guy. Yeah. So this is a real fun show to do because we have a great guy on to talk about a lot about Larry Gelbart. You talk about the face of comedy. Mm -hmm. This man had a front row seat and was instrumental in the formation of comedy and television as we know it today. I mean, he started at the age of 16 writing for Danny Thomas's radio show, and then he goes on from there to write for Bob Hope and Jack Parr and Red Buttons. And he ends up on Caesar's Hour with Sid Caesar and this murderer's row of writers alongside Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and Woody Allen, Neil Simon. I mean, all of these guys, they were creating what we know comedy is now. He goes on, of course, to create and produce MASH and several other television series, but also nominated for Academy Awards for writing Tootsie and Oh God. He wins Tony Awards for writing A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum and City of Angels. And then he writes a book, Laughing Matters. That's a great book. Laughing Matters also inspired the name of this podcast as well. And then finally, inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame and Television Hall of Fame, and rightfully so. Sheesh, I'm exhausted. Right? (laughs) That's holy moly. Yeah, that's a lot. Can you imagine being in that murderer's row of comedy writers? Oh, my goodness. uh, Fellas, I got a joke. Okay, two guys going. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? How much strength does it take to go through (sighs) them? Oh, my goodness gracious. But he did it. Yeah, and he did it. Yeah. Yeah. What a moment to live in and through with those comedy guys. Wow. So today we are going to celebrate Larry, and we're going to be talking to our friend Dan Harrison. We'll tell you more about Dan in the interview, and Dan will tell you how he and Larry first came to know each other and then the impact that Larry had on Dan's life and career. I love this interview because, first of all, Dan's a friend of the podcast and a great guy, and he has a true love for Larry. He has a true love for MASH. And what I really love about this interview is you get a real glimpse of who Larry Gelbart was. It's just a really, really nice conversation with our friend Dan Harrison. I would like to uh, read something that will help sort of introduce uh, our guest. And without me trying to, or Ryan trying to say things about him, I think that there's something that's uh, been written that I found that is really interesting and will really uh, alert 
our listeners to exactly who they're listening to. And I think that's an important thing to do. So I'm just going to read this. This is from an internet publication called Broadcasting and Cable. I think that's the title of it. It was published a few years ago, but it is quite accurate. So here we go. Plenty of kids have pen pals growing up. I had a pen pal, but when he got out of prison, he stopped writing. Anyway, plenty of kids have pen pals growing up. Not many can say that they exchange letters with the creator of one of the most popular television shows in history. But Dan Harrison, Fox's executive VP of strategic program planning, did. As a teenager, the avid MASH fan sent a letter to 20th Century Fox Television and series creator Larry Gelbart responded. The two kept up a correspondence over the next 25 years, with Gelbart teaching Harrison about the creative process of making a TV show and even visiting the high schooler at his home in Schenectady, New York. Harrison credits Gelbart with igniting his passion for television, as well as introducing him to people in the business, like Fox Broadcasting co-founder Barry Diller and television writers Ben Starr and Stanley Ralph Ross, connections that landed him a summer internship at 20th Century Fox TV syndication in college. He's been described as someone who knows everything about everything. In addition to programming a mainframe computer at age 10, and earning a Harvard Law degree, Harrison is also a published author of the Andy Griffith Show Guide, Inside Mayberry. It's also said that Harrison is very modest uh, with no braggadocio (laughs) in this guy. So that's our guest, Dan Harrison. Then you should have booked him, Jeff. Well, really? (laughs) I shouldn't be here. Do you think we can get him, Ryan? I I don't know. I don't know. He sounds like quite a guy. Hey, Dan Harrison, not only have you done all that stuff, but you're a friend and you're a friend of the television show MASH. And so, hey, we are very uh, grateful and uh, thankful and happy that you are here visiting with us today. So welcome to MASH Matters. Thank you very much. As a fan of the podcast and obviously a lifelong fan of the show. I'm happy to be here. You know, if you can give us a little hint about, and now we discussed, or I read about Larry Gelbart. Now you met Larry Gelbart when you were a young fella. Can you give us some kind of insight about Larry? You know, we, unfortunately, Larry is no longer with us. And that's a, that's a crying shame because we wish that we would be able to have Larry on and talk to him about an incredible accomplishment that he, he was able to do. But can you give us some insight into who he was and what kind of a gentleman he was? Sure. Let me give you a little bit of context, though, because I think most listeners, it's a little bit hard to wrap their heads around the era where I reached out and started corresponding with him. I was a huge fan of MASH. I'm talking about the late 70s, early 80s. And I sent a letter to Larry around 1983 as the show was ending. You know, care of 20th Century Fox Television. I had no idea who Larry was other than the writer of many episodes and most of my favorite episodes of MASH. It wasn't an internet. It wasn't like, oh, I'll just go down to the library and pull a book off the shelf and find out who Larry Gelbart is and what other things he's done. So uh, there was no context for me that he had already won Tonys and been Oscar nominated and written hit movies and, you know, done so many other things on television and been truly a, a comedy writing legend by the time I had written to him. And you were just kind of a kid, right? How old were you? Yeah, I was 13 years old. Oh and wow. I was curious about, you know, my favorite show, which in upstate New York, I could watch it 
four or five, six times a day if it was a Monday and there was a an original episode on because we had television stations from Albany, from Boston, from New York. And so I, I consumed MASH multiple times a day. So just to give the context that it, it wasn't easy to just key in somebody's name and pull up an article from a magazine and read all about their bio, it, it, far from it at that point. So I sent Larry a letter, care of Fox, and just, you know, asked a couple of questions. And it was on that, what a high school kid would write on, that white paper that's three-hole punched with the blue lines and the red line that's going vertically and mailed off this letter. And I'm sure, just to be polite, I sent a self-addressed stamped envelope to respond to me. Very nice. And he did. He wrote me back a letter. And so I thought, well, I'm going to continue this dialogue. Why not? And I wrote him back and he, again, shockingly receptive. I didn't, you know, wasn't going through my mind, gee, this is somebody who's legendary. What's he doing writing to me? This is a different time in the world and in my life. And so he responded and I asked him, you know, about writing the show. And of course, you know, I knew the show was ending. I didn't really understand that he was no longer associated with it. But I did understand that. I did learn that when I sent off roughly my fourth letter. And all these letters went to P.O. Box 900, Beverly Hills, California, 90213, which was how you wrote to Fox's main mailbox at the time. And that fourth or fifth letter came back, no forwarding address, returned to sender. Somebody in the Fox mailroom had just been taking pity on me. And Larry lived in the same house for, you know, at that point, probably 15, 20 years and, you know, had been forwarding the letters to his house. And I had no idea. So the next day I read in the New York Times, big headline, Larry Gelbart to speak at the Museum of Television and Radio. So uh, I'm telling my English teacher this. And again, just to say what a different time it was. She hands me a mason jar full of coins, tells me to go to the payphone and call the museum. I had said oh, I was disappointed. I didn't get to continue writing to him. So I went to the payphone. I drop a load of coins in there to call New York City from Schenectady. I get on the phone with a museum, kind of BS my way to saying that I know Larry and want to speak to Larry. And they put me on and he gets on the phone and he says, oh, my gosh, Dan, he says, uh, I'm just about to go on stage. Give me your number. I'll, I'll call you back later today. So I, I give him my number and it's my parents number in Schenectady, New York. There's no cell phones. There's no answering machine. Oh, There's gosh. no call waiting. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the middle of the school day in high school. <laughs> so I get on the school bus. I go home. I tell my mom, do not touch the telephone. I'm waiting for a call. Did anybody call me? No, nobody called you. Okay. Nobody touched the phone. And maybe an hour or two after I got home from school, the phone rings. It's Larry Gelbart. It's the second time I've spoken to him in my life. And it's the second time I've spoken to him that day. And we have a brief but lovely chat. And he gives me his home address and home phone number. Me, even though he's long passed and his widow has passed, the house is you know no longer in his family. I still remember the address and phone number is just sort of <laughs> tattooed on my brain. Yeah. But yeah. then I just picked up the correspondence from there, and we continued writing. And 
just kept exchanging letters with incredible regularity. I mean, I would guess, you know, at least, you know, a dozen plus a year. Wow. Hmm. You know, saying, gee, can you describe a little bit about what Larry Gelbart uh, is like? You just did. What an amazing guy to have, you know, resonated with this young boy and say, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to talk to him. He sounds like a good guy and I'm going to kind of give back to him what I am and what I've done. That's pretty remarkable. You know, at some point early on, I asked him if I could see what a page of a script looked like. And he sent me one page of a script. And, you know, I realized after looking at it, and I think it was from Aftermath, that page, I, I realized after looking at it that that page represented about one minute of dialogue. Again, I, I, you know, with no family in the television business, no understanding of, you know, that it was a business, you know, how it worked, I imagined that the script described every set down to every little item on the set, you know, and was was the size of a phone book. So <laughs> that was a reason why I asked for a page. And so, you know, a few letters later, I got up the gumption and asked for a whole script. And he sent me a whole script. And I realized, oh, okay, well, a whole script is about 35 pages. So that's about right. That's about a minute a page. So now I, you know, I, I learned more that, you know, those things weren't described. And, you know, he kept teaching me through my questions. And I think it helped that, you know, I, I really didn't have this vision of where I was going to go, or even that there was a job in the television business that, you know, was right for me. But I never thought I was going to be a comedy writer. And he just truly had an incredible turn of phrase, whether that's on MASH or in one of his movies or in one of his letters. He had just an incredible ear and an incredible way to turn a phrase. And I think for him, it helped a little bit to have somebody like me as a you know, mentee or protege or somebody that he was taking under his wing in that, you know, it's very hard for a comedy writer to live up to his standard of writing. Mm -hmm. But I think it was a little bit easier for him to see what he wanted to see in me and understand that he was helping me learn about a business that had given him so much and to which he had contributed a great deal. And yet I wasn't trying to be him. Mm -hmm. And so I think that of all of the young people that he had mentored over his life, I had sort of a unique spot in what, you know, where I saw the vision for, ultimately saw the vision for my future. Wow. You know, what a kind of gutsy thing for a kid to do, though, what, <laughs> what you did. You know, it was it, just to sit down and say, hey, I'm going to write this guy and see what happens. And it worked. And then you were able to have a relationship with him. I mean, I know I've spoken with people who are, you know, I, I really admired and looked up to. And it, it's somewhat unsettling because you're very nervous about it and going, gee, I don't want to sound like an idiot. And can I speak right? Can I make my tongue work and stuff like that? So for you as a young 13-year-old to do that, that's pretty gutsy of you to do. I felt very fortunate because the people who most interested me 
as a younger person with respect to MASH were the writers. And perhaps I instinctively knew that television was a writer's medium because I was most interested in corresponding with the writers. I did collect all the autographs of the actors and I got to know some of them better than others. And uh, for example, I know Mike and Jamie quite well. And I've met, I think I've met all of them actually. Um, but uh, the writers were really almost to a person very kind, very nice, very responsive. I mean, some of them had their quirks, but they all were encouraging and saved all that correspondence. I have every letter Larry ever sent to me still. Mm, that's awesome. So you said when you were a kid, you didn't really understand who Larry Gelbart was, his stature in the industry. When did it become obvious to you that, oh my gosh, this is not something that everybody else gets to do. This is quite special. Well, I, I think you're asking two different questions, Ryan. I think the first question you're asking is, when did I realize Larry was more than MASH? Yeah. I think it sort of happened over the course of the mid-80s as the VCR made watching movies at home very accessible. So suddenly, oh, there's Tootsie. Hey, that was written by Larry Gelbart. And Larry was putting out new projects too. So I'd be able to see, oh, there's a new movie, a new play by Larry and so that would drive some correspondence or he might work on something that doesn't turn into something. And he would tell me about that. So all of that started to become, even though there was no internet, just home video made that a little bit more accessible. And then I think the other part of your question, you know, I, I didn't find it intimidating because I didn't know I should be intimidated, right? A 13-year-old <laughs> thir doesn't know that they need to be intimidated unless they're, you know, meeting their favorite athlete who they see on television. You, you're not going to find a television writer to be this super intimidating presence. And Larry, of course, success be well beyond television. I'm not, don't mean to minimize his contributions, but, you know, it wasn't something that was very intimidating. I think, funnily enough, when Larry came to Schenectady and came to my house, my mother was gardening when he <laughs> came over. And my mother was a little intimidated because she was like, OK, you just brought Larry Gelbart over to our house and I've got green grass stains on my knees. <laughs> So how did that happen? How did Larry end up at your house? Larry had a farm, I think, in Chatham, New York, or he had a country house in Chatham, New York. And he was going to be up, in, you know, upstate. And so he said he wanted to meet me. And so it was obviously a privilege. And, and again, the late 80s, there would be nothing stranger untoward seeming about this middle-aged guy going to a teenager's house to, you know, there was nothing that felt strange about it. And I, at that point, I had been corresponding with him for a couple of years. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just was obviously moved to be able to meet him. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time. And, and then very quickly thereafter, I actually started coming out to L.A., and working in the summers, starting in late in high school. And so it was an opportunity to meet Larry, although it 
Almost didn't happen the first time I went to his house. There used to be, again, pre-internet. Jeff, you'll remember this. There used to be a giant book that did was about the size of a phone book called The Thomas Guide. Mm-hmm. And it was a map of every street in L.A. and how to get there. And so I had a Thomas guy that was a few years older, but the street that Larry lived on, part of it had changed its name. So I had the address and I had an old Thomas guide and I went to the place where a street was supposed to be and it wasn't there. <laughs> and so, and by the way, I wasn't old enough to drive. So I'm taking a bus around LA wow. and now I don't know where I am. I've taken a bus to the wrong spot and now I'm trying to find his house. And fortunately, I asked a few people. There's not a lot of people wandering around the streets of Beverly Hills, but I found some people to ask and they corrected me and told me what happened to his street and took me a little bit of a walk, but I got there. None of this could happen today. None of it. <laughs> None of it. No, not, no. not any of it. So when you got there, was he there? Was he home? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had been invited. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> no, no, I, I wasn't just showing, showing up. up banging on the door. <laughs> hey, Larry, come on out and play. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, in a million years, I never would have done that. No, okay. he invited me. It just, you know, I got a little lost because of this Thomas guide snafu. And carrying that big book around, that's heavy book. That was probably not easy. Well, you book. remember the Thomas guide, Jeff. I'm I sure. do. I do. I'm sitting on one right now. <laughs> <laughs> So this wasn't just a relationship when you were a teenager. This is a relationship that lasted up until Larry's passing, right? Yes, absolutely. Obviously, you know, what started out as almost exclusively letters, transition to calls and in-person visits, ultimately email, you know, and get-togethers for lunch or breakfast or visits. I mean, one of the great regrets of my life. I was a senior in college. Larry invited me to the premiere of both City of Angels and Mastergate, which were two Broadway plays that opened in the same season. I would guess that was a 90-91 season on Broadway. And I thanked him graciously, but turned him down because I didn't want to miss class at school. So I've never been to a Broadway premiere in my life, and I suppose that is appropriate punishment for me. (laughs) But, you know, that was how close we were. And, you know, I should have done that or done at least one of those. But, you know, we had many conversations and he was a confidant of mine and I was a confidant of his. And he signed his copy of uh, his book, Laughing Matters, to me. And it said to Dan, who is my student and my teacher, best Larry. Oh, wow. So, you know, many mementos of the relationship that I cherish to this day. And I'm sure many of your listeners probably realize I'm the one who did the TV Academy interview at Larry's request. Ah. So that's available online. It's a multi-hour interview. And uh, Larry asked me to be his interviewer. How cool is that? Wow. Do do you have a one really great moment that you kind of took with you? I'm sure there's obviously of your relationship, there's so many. Well, one of the things, and my kids have heard this story many times, you know, maybe it's the latter things that really are just jammed into my head. 
when I had my oldest daughter, who's now 17 or just about 17, Larry said to me, do you know why the grandparent-grandchild bond is so special? And I said, no, why? He said, because they share a common enemy. (laughs) (laughs) And, And that is... Just, you know, again, a perfect <laughs> Gelbardism turn yeah. of phrase. You know, it's exactly how he writes. Mm-hmm. And one other thing that really has stuck with me to this day, I, I would say every time Larry and I spoke on the phone, there was a purpose. It didn't have to be a tremendous purpose, you know, wasn't a museum worthy purpose. You know, it might be, hey, I'm going to be in XYZ part of LA. Can you know, do you have a suggestion as to where I should have lunch? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and by the way, there were some very serious purposes too that we would have very intimate discussions about things that were important to him. But every call had a purpose, even if it was as slender as, you know, can you recommend a restaurant? The the last time Larry called me, which was probably August of 2009, he passed September 11, 2009. We spoke, I remember I was at work and we spoke for at least 20 minutes and it was a very lengthy call. We didn't often have phone calls that went that long and, you know, just talked about anything and everything and catching up and family and you know, kids and, and all of that stuff. Then he said goodbye and, you know, I love you and we'll chat soon and great. And that was the last time I spoke to him. And when he passed away, as you can imagine, he had been a you know significant part of my life and all my friends knew that we were close. And so, so many people reached out to me to express their condolences. And I reached out to a lot of people I knew who he was also close to. And I was reading everything and it dawned on me that Larry was saying goodbye to me in a special way without telling me that he was sick. You know, I reported that to his family and they said, you know, nobody else had reported that, but they weren't surprised that that happened to me because of how close he and I were. And I knew his family quite well, but that was how he said goodbye to me. Mm. Uh, my gosh, the the impact that he's had on you. What? Uh, how did he change you, or, or what? What did you? What did you come away with that you wouldn't have had had you not had that relationship? Well, I think the way that I, you know, live my life in terms of interests is I, I like to go deep. I like to really learn about topics that interest me, and you know, they don't have to have the greatest impact on my life. I I also am an amateur photographer and I like to learn a lot about editing and just go deep on those kind of things. And so as I learned about television, I was going deep and wanted to understand the creative process and the business process. And I felt that my career would be at the intersection of the two. And I just would read everything I could. I was at law school and I had a subscription to Variety, which was a daily paper, and it would show up about four days late in Boston. But I would read it cover to cover every day because I knew I was interested in it. And so Larry 
you know, was very kind and gracious in, in his area of expertise, which was obviously all about the creative process. He allowed me to go deep and dream big about what the opportunities were in the entertainment business. And that was the gift to me in addition to the friendship and the love and the encouragement. He was just a, uh, a delight. When I got sworn into the California State Bar, Larry and Ben Starr and Stanley Ralph Ross all came and Larry got a limo and my father flew in from Schenectady, New York. And we all, you know, went to Pasadena and all of us stood up at the time where, you know, the the person was supposed to be sworn in. Our whole row stood up and then we all went to lunch afterwards at a restaurant in Pasadena. And, you know, that was just a tremendous memory. So going from passing the bar to your current position, vice president of entertainment at Fox, how did your career path steer towards the entertainment industry and and how much of an influence was Larry in that decision? Well, I mean, really what happened was I got a summer job. I met Stanley Ross through Larry. Stanley wrote an episode of MASH. He wrote one episode of MASH and it was eaten. And it was for the first season, and Larry and Gene bought it. It was called Hawkeye on the Double. It's on the uh, DVD box set. You can find it as a feature. And they CBS said not one word. It was too racy for television. So Larry told me this, and again, in just going deep, of course, then I had to write to Stanley Ross and introduce myself and say, Larry told me this story, and do you have a copy of the script? And I'd love to hear your point of view about it. And he, uh, you know, teenage teenagers have a lot of time on their hands, right? So <laughs> I, I got a copy of that script and I heard the story and I truly became part of the Ross family. So, you know, along the way, as I gained all these relationships, Stanley Ross was at a meeting at Fox and I had always been interested in technology. I had taught myself how to program a mainframe. And I was I was the editor of my high school newspaper and Apple picked three high schools in the country to give this new machine called a Macintosh to and another new machine called a laser printer to. And you had to publish with a certain frequency and they wanted us to pioneer desktop publishing. So my little public high school in upstate New York had that gift from Apple. And I was the editor of the year we transitioned to that. So Stanley Ross is in a meeting at Fox. He has a very deep voice, and he's meeting a guy who has also passed away named Kevin Burns. Stanley says, so, uh, Kevin, where are you from? And Kevin says, oh, I'm from the small town called Schenectady, New York. Schenectady, New York, I know this kid. He's from Schenectady. He's a computer whiz. He loves MASH. He's looking for a summer job. I mean, Stanley went into full agent mode. And I mean, he left that meeting. He lived about half a mile from Fox. He walked in the door. He called me. He said, you've got to call this guy, Kevin Burns. He went, he grew up in Schenectady, New York. He's expecting your call. So I call Kevin. I talked to him. Not only did he grow up in Schenectady, New York, he knew my great uncle. We went to the same high school. There were all kinds of connections. And so by the end of that call, he was hiring me for the summer at Fox. And this was, I was a freshman in college. Hmm. 
So I went and I would take my Macintosh on the bus to get to Fox every day. There was no laptop. This was that rectangular Macintosh. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So that's, a, that's like carrying around a Thomas Guide almost. Oh, it's, it's a lot more than that. Yeah. So I'm carrying like 20 pounds of computer into Fox every day. And Fox says I can't leave it on the lot because they were worried about the computer's safety. Huh. They didn't want it stolen. And I would turn around and say, hey, you owe me a computer. So at the end of the summer, and I was working doing marketing in their syndication unit, they said, we're not going back to typewriters. They didn't, Fox didn't have a computer. This is around 19, <laughs> summer of 1988, 89. Wow. And they wow. said, we're not going back to typewriters. Here's a FedEx account. We're going to call you. You work on projects during the school year. We're going to give you a raise. You're coming back next summer. Hmm. So I worked for Fox basically for three and a half years of college. And I had a great time. I mean, what's not to love about getting paid, working on a movie studio lot. I was working on MASH marketing for syndication and a lot of other shows, you know, old shows like MASH and Batman, the Adam West one and Trapper John and lots of different shows and new shows like A Current Affair and Studs. And you know, it was a thrill to be able to host Larry and Stanley for lunch at the Fox Commissary. Oh, yeah. So then I went to law school. My father went to Harvard Law, so it just felt like the thing to do. And, you know, being a lawyer did not seem like that much fun compared to what I had been doing <laughs> in college. So, I mean, I had gone in and thought, well, I'll be an entertainment lawyer. But I just decided, you know what, I think I would rather find a career in television. So my last year of law school, I started you know, seriously looking for a job and Harvard Law School is a great credential. It teaches a person to think. It teaches a person how to, you know, spot issues and evaluate risks and put things together differently or understand why things are the way they are or see how things should be. So I went into CBS and had a meeting with the then president of CBS. And he said, Harvard meet Harvard. And, and he had been to Harvard as well. And then he introduced me to their head of scheduling, who was a guy named Peter Tortorisi. And Peter said, listen, I think you're crazy because I practiced law and I didn't go to a law school as good as you are. So I know exactly what you would earn as a lawyer coming out of Harvard. If you want to get into television, you should consider a career in this and I'm going to help you. And so he spent the better part of a year, we would have a monthly call and, I, and he would say, send me a memo every month on some issue of CBS that I you know, should be thinking about. And what I quickly learned was I was, I'm not taking credit for anything, but I was playing along very well. Whatever my memo was suggesting, they wound up doing. And I don't think it was, I don't think it was because of me. Again, I'm not taking any credit in the world, but I just thought, well, I'm playing along with people who are doing this professionally. So I'm on the right track. Hmm. That's what got me, you know, sort of going. And to think, had it not been for you, Fox would probably still be using typewriters. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. But in the late 80s in syndication, they were a little technologically limited. But my whole career has been uh, 
you know, I've, I've liked to put technology and television together in, in different and interesting ways. And so that's been part of my journey. But I really do owe it to Larry. And when Larry passed and I was thinking about him a great deal, you know, I wanted to think about what's a really, uh, you know, appropriate way for me to create a tribute to him. And and I actually called my old high school and I said, I'd like to, you know, this was a relationship that I developed in high school. And I would like to write an article for my old high school paper about it just to encourage students today to dream big and think about beyond the four walls of the school and what they want to do or who they want to meet and who they want to be and what values they want to have. And so I, I wrote an article for my high school paper about Larry and about his impact and how that is something that they should take with them, at least the spirit of that, into their own journey. And had you not written that, uh, had that young boy, 13 years old, not written to Larry Gelbart, all these opportunities that you've had and you've experienced may not have come to pass, really. No, I, I don't think that they would have. I think I would have just taken a different professional journey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure that would have been okay, too. I've loved every minute of this. And I, you know, sit in my office every day and I look at a framed copy of the title card from MASH. Mm-hmm. You know, it's inspiration to me on my professional journey to this day. And Larry, for me, was really patient zero. But I, I had no expectation that, you know, in sending that letter off in a mailbox in Schenectady, New York, that he was going to respond or not, or that anybody owed me anything, or, you know, that it was going to turn into anything significant. I just have a habit of cultivating relationships. And so once he responded, again, it wasn't you know, anything that was really thought out, but I just cultivated that relationship. You know, I, based on my relationship with MASH and the nine years that I was there and knowing the people who were running the place, I came away from the show with the opinion that were it not for two guys, Gene Reynolds and Larry Gelbart, we probably wouldn't be talking about MASH. I've long since said that those two gentlemen were the people that set the bar and created something that everybody said, wow, this is going to work. And without them, I just don't think we'd be talking about MASH. No, you're right. And I mean, certainly it didn't hurt that after the first year, you know, where MASH was very poorly rated, CBS moved it into an iconic Saturday night lineup with Mary Tyler Moore and All in the Family and Bob Newhart and Carol Burnett. And that was the night of television in 1973-74. And Larry quickly realized that, you know, most people had not seen the first season of MASH. And so he wrote Divided We Stand, which I often actually hold out as a terrific example of what even shows today what they should be doing for a second episode or third episode. In this case, it was the premiere episode of the second season of MASH. Right. But it was really a second pilot. You know, you have that psychiatrist who comes in and there's the rumor he's there to break up the 4077. But what is really happening in that episode is the viewer is meeting everybody, quote unquote, for the first time. It's hard for fans today to realize that 
you know, most people hadn't seen the first season. So when they watch that episode, it probably doesn't have the resonance that was intended back in September of 1973 when it let off the second season. But MASH went from being the lowest rated show renewed in May of 72 to being a top 10 show starting in the fall of 73, where it would remain for the rest of its run. Do you think it had anything to do with the fact that they did have Private Igor on at that point? And would you think any of that may... I'll take anything away from that. I... Just give me some, a little, a little piece of something that I can do. Definitely. I think it, it had everything to do with you. Thank you. Dan, 50th anniversary this past year, and uh, you came out and hung out with us at the ranch when we were out there. And uh, we hung out with you in your office in the Fox lot the day before. And looking back, I mean, you, you've been a lifelong fan. And of course, you have a deeper connection to MASH than most people because of your uh, relationship with Larry and also your career. You have a, a different look at MASH from an industry perspective. Now that we've reached 50 years, why does MASH matter? Why is it so special and why does it still resonate 50 years later? Well, you know, I mean, the 50th was touching for me because, you know, sadly, there aren't as many of the stalwarts left. And, you know, we all participated in the special on reels, which was excellent. And that was Burt Metcalf's you know, what turned out to be his final public interview, I believe. Mm-hmm. So I did start to feel a little bit professionally like the keeper of the flame or one of the keepers of the flame. I mean, you guys are obviously very public, but professionally, you know, being out there, I, you know, was one of the people who would speak to MASH in context uh, on the 50th anniversary. And that in and of itself was very touching to me. I'm not as public as both of you are. I feel like mash a certain things that put it on what I've long called, you know, one of the faces on the Mount Rushmore of TV syndication, you know, with I Love Lucy and Andy Griffith and The Simpsons and Friends, you know, Seinfeld are up there now. But there's only a handful of shows that really resonate over the course of decades. And and interestingly, you know, I'll get to mash, of course, but All in the Family it probably is not one of them up there because it is so topical. Mm -hmm. Compare that to MASH. MASH took place in the 50s and society in the 50s were, you know, 70 years gone from the Korean War. And so American society in the 50s was very different than it is today. It's, It's a view on women, race, sexuality, all of that. Very, very different, even by comparison in the 70s to the 50s. There were a lot of changes had started to happen, and those changes were reflected to some degree, you know, as they could be in MASH. But MASH is a reflection of early 50s, I was going to say America, but it's, you know, Americans in Korea. That is timeless. Like, that is not going to change. And the costumes are not going to change because those are the uniforms, you know, from being soldiers in the Korean War. And the haircuts were military haircuts, so they don't look out of date today. And then, you know, I think one thing, again, I would say if Larry were here, I'm sure he would agree that, you know, he didn't have the foresight to say, well, television is going to become and and film much more fast paced 50 years later, but it has. And MASH was one of the first shows 
to have multiple storylines weaved through an episode and stories told in real time and nonlinear stories. And I think some 38th Parallels has about half a dozen stories in that episode. They're not all very long. You know, they're different impact to that episode. And of course, Larry invented the Dear Dad episodes. But, you know, when you add it all up, MASH was not contemporary. It was breaking ground in how it felt. So it feels a little bit more at home today than other shows from the 70s. It was blessed by being shot on film, which means that it stands the test of time a lot better than shows that were shot on video. And film can be mastered and remastered in every new format. So MASH on DVD, of course, looks great. But right before Disney took over the assets of Fox that it had bought, which included MASH, Fox remastered MASH in 16 by 9 HD. So again, you watch it on an iPad and you're seeing scenes with a crispness that were never the way it looked on CBS and never the way it looked in syndication and 16 by 9. So it it would fill a TV screen today, the modern TV screen, which is rectangular in shape instead of square. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, if a black and white movie came on, I was probably flipping the channel. And I think that having shows come on that have the pillar bars, the black lines on the side, because the show was old enough that it was formatted in four by three, that's a barrier to younger viewers today. But MASH is now available in 16 by nine. So, you know, it keeps up with the times, both as a format and more importantly, you know, I think the comedy, it's universal. It's about trying to stay sane in an insane situation in a war zone. And that template, of course, started with a book, then went to a, a movie that was highly acclaimed. And then Gene Reynolds got the opportunity to develop that as a TV series. And his first call was to Larry, who was living in London. Larry wrote the script rather quickly, and that moved Larry back to L.A., And the two of them were partners producing the show. The writing staff was Larry Gelbart and Larry Marks, Lawrence Marks, for the first couple of seasons. And they would uh, assign out scripts and then rewrite them to create seasons of MASH. Did Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds know each other previous to to, uh, Gene reaching out to him? Yes. To your knowledge, had they ever worked together? Gene was sort of like a a house producer, you know, an in-house producer at Fox. He had worked on Room 222 with Jim Brooks and Alan Burns. He might have worked on Hogan's Heroes. Mm -hmm. Of course, MASH was sort of the anti-Hogan's Heroes. But Larry and Gene definitely knew each other. And then after they created MASH, I mean, obviously it was developed for television by Larry and Gene was the Uh, Gene was credited as the producer in season one. Larry was credited as executive story consultant. Gene directed the pilot. Larry wrote the pilot. But then after the first season, they also did some other shows together that didn't 
go very far. Uh, you guys, I think, talked about rollout with Ed Begley. Yeah. And that was one of them. I mean, not quite a spinoff, but let's just say a, a distant relation to MASH. Oh, yeah. But they also had a show called If I Love You, Am I Trapped Forever that they did together, which was, a, I believe, a high school show. <laughs> And then they did Karen with Karen Valentine in 1975. So they had a few things in common after creating MASH. Karen, I remember Karen. I had a great, a huge crush on Karen Valentine. And she had a party and uh, invited me to the party because I did, I did a show, I think, and I did one episode or something. She invited me to the party and I was so excited because she was so kind and wonderful. I really liked her. And she had a bunch of food there. One of the things that just blew me away were coconut balls. (laughs) (laughs) Just (laughs) coconut balls, which was you take a banana and you smash it up and you roll it into a ball and then you take the ball and you roll it into a bunch of coconut and you put it in the refrigerator for about 20 minutes and take it out and you eat that and you go to heaven. It is so delicious. I can't begin <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> so I stood there all night long eating coconut balls <laughs> at Karen Valentine's house. And so Dan uh, introduced computers to Fox and Karen Valentine introduced coconut balls, balls to Jeff, Jeff Maxwell. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple of questions. So, you know, people ask me this and they ask Ryan this, and this is a kind of a common question, but I'm going to ask it. Do you have a favorite MASH episode? Well, um, I don't. And, and funnily enough, when I was doing the syndication marketing, basically my 25 favorite episodes became in the syndication package, the best of MASH month. So it doesn't make a connection to me at all. But I mean, there are, there are certainly episodes that are iconic and memorable for different reasons. I mean, sometimes you hear the bullet because, of course, it was just an important episode the first season for where the show was going to go. The pilot, you know, the first episode, Dear Dad, for pure comedy, I think uh, Adam's Rib. And uh, Big Mac are two of the best examples of pure comedy on the show. But there's so many great episodes that it's hard to just say, oh, it's just one. Mm -hmm. Do you subscribe to the idea that at some point MASH became too preachy, uh, quote, preachy, and uh, left some of the comedy behind you? How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, look, there's no denying that it was hard to just carry on Larry's legacy without Larry and ultimately without Gene. So the fifth season is, I think, the closest to the fourth season. I I don't just mean numerically, but I, I mean in tone and tempo and feel because Gene was there and Larry wasn't. And then Burt Metcalf took over running the show. And Burt had been there from the beginning. He was associate producer of the pilot and you know, instrumental in the casting. But, you know, at that point, Alan Alda took over a greater role in the writing room. You had a bigger writing staff than just Larry Gelbart and Lawrence Marks. And Gene was involved, but as a consultant, it wasn't his full-time job. He was producing Lou Grant and went on to produce other shows. So he was a, you know, one day a week, I believe, consultant. And Gene 
had a tremendous sense of story. That was one of his true talents as a producer. He had many talents, but he had a tremendous sense of story. And so MASH, I think, was bound to become more serious, more character-driven as it went on, and just you know, hard to live up to the bones of the comedy that Larry had laid. So over time, it did become more serious. Do you have uh, any sense about la- how Larry felt about that? Or did he notice it? Or did he watch it and say, hey, gosh, you know, I wouldn't have done that or any of that? Larry would never, ever have been critical of those who came after. It's just not who he was mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. I know Ken Levine and David Isaacs quite well. And, you know, they had a relationship with Larry. I mean, they worked with Larry on Aftermash, but when they came into MASH, they would get notes from Larry complimenting them on an episode. So they knew that he was watching. I don't think he was making an appointment television that he wouldn't miss an episode, but I think he wanted to see what, you know, those who came after did with the show. And he was very generous with his feedback. Mm-hmm. You you have had uh, quite a career uh, in. It's not tele- over. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't mean to imply that. No, certainly. Uh, but you've done so many things, and you've worked with so many people, and uh, have been a, on the precipice of a lot of wonderful things. What excites you now about the TV business or the entertainment business? You know, what I love about my role is every day is a new challenge. And of course, you know, there used to be three networks, four networks, and they were limited by how many networks you could squeeze over the airwaves, right? That was the, it was physics that was the limiting factor. And then it was, you know, how many networks could you squeeze through copper cables? And again, they were limited. Today, there is no limit to how much video can be uploaded to YouTube and other sites. And and there are all these streamers. And so the challenge is really about marketing and finding an audience and super serving that audience so that they embrace a particular platform and want to keep coming back to the platform. And so my role at Fox is to keep my eye on how do we have programs that make viewers want to come back. Our schedule and our nonlinear offering is a little bit of a limiting factor. At the same time, we try to make every show great for some fan base. And we really work hard on all kinds of little issues. I mean, things like the transition of football or baseball into a program and how do we maximize that audience? Those are things that I think about professionally and and work on all the time. We really are focused on the viewer and making sure that they recognize our brand's vibrancy and editorial point of view. And what we're offering is the Fox Network, and it's a whole group of people who is part of the team that does that. And, you know, it's it's obviously a different environment than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. But it's still exciting to come to work, and it's exciting to be a part of a brand like Fox and to put out entertainment like The Mass Singer and 911 and The Simpsons and Family Guy and shows that really connect with 
audiences to this day. Mm-hmm. Wow. You you said earlier that MASH was one of the assets purchased by Disney. MASH's 50th anniversary comes and goes. Nothing really happened from Disney. And I'm, I'm interested in hearing from an executive perspective, somebody who works on the other side. Why do you think that was? And is there a reason that they didn't? I mean, I, I, I know that you probably don't know exactly why they didn't, but do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I don't know why they didn't, but you know, they have so much content out there and they have so many platforms, you know, they have ABC, they have Hulu, they have Disney Plus and Lucasfilm and Marvel, Marvel, yeah. and, you know, so they have mouths that they are busy feeding with new material still impacted by a pandemic. Yeah. And I think that their resources, my guess, and again, it's just a guess. Are, are focused on that. I still think there's a lot of value and interest in MASH, but you know they are the caretakers of the show now. And so they are the ones who make those decisions. Well, Dan Harrison, you've said it all. Or an hour's worth of it all. An hour's worth of it. <laughs> you've, you've educated it. Now, if you, if you get sick of Fox, you know, Mash Matters could use you probably. I think we could <laughs> start you out as a summer internship. You'll need to bring your own computer with you, though. I can just tell you, thank goodness it's three pounds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Progress. <laughs> I, I brought my own computer with me to do this, and it's three pounds. <laughs> You're not on a bus, are you? No, I am not on a bus. <laughs> well, Dan, thank you so, so much for being uh, here with us. We really really appreciate it. And, and I've learned a lot. And uh, it's so interesting to hear uh, somebody from your perspective, a, a television executive and, and a wonderful friend of a wonderful man, Larry Galbart. It's just wonderful to hear your thoughts about it. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you to our friend Dan Harrison for spending time with us and talking about Larry Gelbart. The one thing, though, that is still weighing on my mind, Jeff, did you ever find the actual recipe for Karen Valentine's coconut balls? <laughs> no. Karen Valentine's coconut balls. I, I have searched long and far, <laughs> and I will continue to do so until I get the exact, accurate, the best recipe for Karen Valentine's coconut balls. Karen, if you're listening, please dig through your recipe book. I think that needs to be in the updated cookbook, Jeff. It's going in. Karen Valentine's coconut <laughs> ball. <laughs> she doesn't get a cut of the proceeds, but uh, no, hey. We can- buzz off, Karen. I just want the ball <laughs> recipe. Incidentally, Karen Valentine was really a nice person. I enjoyed whatever work I had with her and knowing her. She was really a delightful human being, and I, I assume she still is. So if you're out there, hi, Karen. You don't remember me, but I remember you because you were such a nice person. So thank you. And those coconut balls. I'm just trying to butter her up. I want the <laughs> coconut ball recipe. I'll say anything at this point. Hey, we want to thank some folks who make this show possible. These are some of our Patreon VIPs. Yes, we're going to start with Private Chris Pierce. Corporal Lisa Ciceri. And Corporal Lisa Neville. Corporal Galinda Bruton. And Corporal Mark Staten. 
promoted from private, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Congratulations on your promotion. Captain Joya Albi. Captain Leslie Blue Funk. <laughs> Major Jessica Gunkel. And Major Rachel Cooper. And Major Larry and Julie Paul. Thank you for supporting the show, and you too can become a Mash Matters VIP at mashmatters.com slash support. That last major's name, Major Larry and Julie Paul, that gave me a double take when I first saw it because my wife's name is Julie, her brother's name is Paul, and their dad's name was Larry. So when I saw all of their names together, I thought somebody was playing a joke on me. Well, maybe they are. Maybe it's possible. (laughs) Maybe they are. It is possible. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't be the first time. All right. Until next time, here's looking up your old address. (laughs) 